everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Soul Focus Radio. So excited to have you joining us for part two of the Inner Child Podcast with Dustin, Hank, and Cindy. I hope you enjoyed part one. In fact, I know you did because we got incredible feedback, including a therapist who said that they posted on their uh, Facebook page and they required it as homework for several of their clients. So which is incredible, right? So we know that this resonated with so many people. So I'm not going to talk much more. I'm going to let you all just get right into um, part two. So enjoy. So have you ever heard of a term called groundwater? Groundwater is another word we use at the Soul Focus Group that means subconscious programming. From the ages of zero to seven, we are subconsciously programmed. So much information and choices and decisions are downloaded into our subconscious mind. And we begin to start living that life. And even though that life we're living is not the life we chose for ourselves. And it's not until we understand the impact of the groundwater, what the groundwater really is, that we begin to wake up to our own lives and begin to choose what we want for ourselves. At the Soul Focus Group, we bring you to that consciousness so that you can begin to choose the life you want to live for yourself. So, so I, I want to pivot um, for the rest of our time together, looking at uh, social change and whether that's, you know, work we're doing around creating human solidarity, you know, responding to racism. But, you know, I know from my experience and I know Cindy, from your experience, you know, we've done this work for many, many, many years. And one of the things that I saw very consistently and participated in, because I hadn't done healing, was we created so many ways a culture of pain where the practitioners who were asking for social change were really profoundly hurting each other. Um, And we were doing our work, even, you know, our external work from a place of hurt. And it's not to say, of course, racism doesn't hurt. But looking back now, we were all wounded in our children again trying to play adult and to make profound levels of change, but we hadn't been able to even make that own level of change in our lives and families. So we saw all kinds of death, fractured relationships, addiction, suicides. I mean, you know, it was was painful. And so many of us were just hurting each other. So I want to give you an opportunity to speak around both why is this conversation around a wounded inner child so important for those of us who are seeking to create social change? How does it, the unhealed inner child, affect our approach uh, at, at, at every level, right? And I want both of you to speak to that. So whoever wants to take that can jump in. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I spoke earlier. I think we have an obligation as individual people who are um, who are engaging in with vulnerable communities and with vulnerable people, right? Because we want to say vulnerability, people experience vulnerability because environments create context to make them vulnerable. Um, and so we, if we're going to engage in, in healing and in, you know, restoring humanity to spaces, we really, really, really have to do our own work. Because like I said earlier, if we're, we're unhealed, we're just going to be practicing unhealed, you know, uh, you know, uh, we're going to be practicing our unhealed trauma on other people. And that's just not going to be something that is going to be healthy for us or the people around us. And the thing about the social justice movement is like, I was actually having this conversation with somebody who's a good friend of yours and mine, Dustin, we've known for a long time. And I finally was like, look, like we all were in search of the same thing. When we came together in spaces, we wanted love. We wanted acceptance. We wanted to feel a part of a family. 
And we were trying to re we were trying to create the family that potentially we didn't have or the community we didn't have internally in the movement. What we found out very quickly, though, is that we also came from very, very, very broken and very painful and very abusive communities, families and, and relationships. So what we tried to recreate, we never experienced before. And the place that we never actually experienced it was with ourselves. We were never in uh, we were never in solidarity with ourselves and who we understood ourselves to be. So of course we went into into these spaces and did some really fucked up shit to each other. We treated each other with massive levels of disrespect that extended beyond just racism. I don't say just, but extended beyond racism, sexism. It it extended way beyond that. It was a replication of the trauma we had experienced that we reenacted on each other over and over and over again. And so we're in spaces where we're trying to be, build community, yet we're acting like that that wounded inner, that wounded child walking around in adult bodies that you described, Dustin. And so, and people saw through that really, really quickly. Um, we were never actually able to en- enact the, the, the change that we wanted to. But more importantly than all of that, our our relationships fell apart so quickly we couldn't stay in relationship with each other long enough to get it done. So we have to do this work. Otherwise, we're going to be recreating these really broken family systems and, and systems in, internally in the movement. And we already have enough stacked against us from systems, from institutions, from people in positions of power to not be in solidarity. So I would say say that. But then the other piece is this. And I want to just, and I don't know where this fits in this conversation, but I want to say it. Like we there's this incredible study and it was a study done around cats and cat hairs and rats. And I want to use this as an example of like what we're living with that we're not actually talking about or really acknowledging. Um, This incredible study was done to look at the reaction that rats have to cats. And obviously evolutionarily rats are afraid of cats, right? They're really terrified. They're going to get caught. They're going to get eaten. They're going to get killed by rats. So what these researchers did is they introduced cats who had never See, who have never seen a rat and rats have never seen these cats. They introduced these cats to these, these mice and these rats. And they said, like, we're going to scare these rats and then we're going to have them have babies. And so that's what they did. They scared the rats. The rats had babies and the rat pups never, ever, ever, ever met a cat ever in their lives. They had no reason to have ever met a cat. The researchers introduced one cat hair to a cage of rat pups. Now they measured that they measured the amount of play that those rat pups were doing prior to the cat hair going into the tank. And they were like vigorously playing. They loved, they were playing, they were happy, they were joyful, they were running around the cage, they were doing all fun things. As soon as one cat hair was entered into the cage, they stopped playing completely. They've never met a cat. They've never seen a cat. They never smelled a cat. But as soon as that one cat hair was entered, they stopped playing completely. And the thing is, is that even once that that cat hair was removed from the tank, the rat pups never went back to playing at the same rate ever again. Right. And that's really what we are right in this process is we've all had experiences. Our parents have had experiences. Our generations before us have had experiences with a whole bunch of cats. And even when we the trauma, the the trauma trigger, that thing is taken away from us, we still never go back to playing because we've never uncovered the fact that there's a cat hair in our tank. And I think that that is a piece that we, we really have to talk about because that is social justice work. We've had racial trauma. We've had all these things happen to us. And yes, we can say that even internally, even if racism is not happening internally in that organization or in that place, even when we remove that, the cat hair is still there and the reminder is still there. And so we never go back to playing at the same rate we did before. And so I want to just throw that in there for however we want to talk about that, because that's a really important part of this puzzle 
is that we have to really start to uncover that if we want to do our work, if we ever want to go back to playing at the same same rate as we did when we were first born, which is what those pups did. Hank, you have any thoughts around this this specific? I know you have thoughts about this specific topic. I mean, I'd love to add on to what Cindy just said, but let me circle back. There's an interesting concept in ACA work also. It, it, it distinguishes the inner child from the inner teen, okay? And the inner child, for it's oversimplified, but only by a little. The inner child tends to be the flight side of a fight or flight, the vulnerable, scared, wounded. When you feel that way, when you identify as kind of wide-eyed deer in headlights, it's your inner child, when you're upset, sad. Inner teen, the teen role tends to be more protective, angry, rebellious teen, you know, tends to have like gotten sick of how that inner child's getting pushed around like hey fuck you all okay you know i'm gonna that's more the fight side of the fight or flight which is handy when you do this work to identify who, who you're with given what's coming up you know chances are if you're that angry it's teen thing chances are if you're really scared and vulnerable it's a child thing so a lot of the 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 dynamic now look that teen or that child can be expressing a truth the same truth right we were treated poorly in some way. We are expressing that. I think that what you, you all, now I, I'm someone who came into your social justice work late. I refer to myself lovingly as the as the token clueless white guy who entered the conversation with you all about eight years ago. I was dragged to it because uh, of the APU controversy that we can get into another time, but I really had to look into uh, the realities of uh, of racism in America to see how I was playing a part in it or not. So I did not have, so when I entered these seminars uh, where, where you're describing where I first met you both, to the extent that they were angry, to the extent that they were how you just described them, kind of dysfunctional and expression of that kind of inner teen anger, and I was feeling it, um, I noticed it. I felt bad uh, receiving it sitting there. The truths that you all were telling me were no less true. They just were expressed in some angry ways that uh, were scary to me, that were, you know, made me go into a little bit of fight or flight. I didn't have the luxury of walking out of those rooms and going, well, I don't like that. So I'm out of here. I, I had to stay with the conversation because I had a really important practical decision to make about whether to keep doing that voice of Apu or not and what that meant. So a lot of what we're describing here, we have a cute program saying, say what you mean, but don't say it mean. And like like inner child, the kids is cutesy and kindergarten at first, but it's kind of everything. You know, the way that now having, when I met you, Dustin, you were kind of mid-transformation into graduating out of that uh, a little angrier way of expressing things into a more loving, connected way, telling no less truth. You know, the history of the, this country, if you haven't heard it, the 1619 version is, is what it is. There's no, it's not theoretical, critical race theory. It's not a theory. M it might be a theory as to much as still impacts us today, although I think Cindy spoke really beautifully to that with her cat air analogy just now. But how is, is expressed is up for interpretation. So the same truth can be delivered in a loving, connected way and a kind of angry way. And I think what, to me, the ultimate example of, I was still, when you first hear the history of the United States, the real one, as a fairly clueless white person who grew up with the 1776 people singing, you know, at Congress and Thomas Jefferson doing numbers on Broadway stage, which is lovely and a lot of it's true, but it leaves out a lot. 
And when you hear the real, the 1619 version, it's devastating, devastating. I was devastated. It was like hearing your father is a serial killer. That's how it hit me. It's like hearing, oh, my founding father that I kind of loved, George Washington and those guys, they, they did what? I mean, it, it really is upsetting. Not taking away from the wonderful things they did. It's just that there was also this terrible side. And that had real consequences, really terrible consequences. So in that moment where I think me, I know I can speak personally, and all the other white people in the room were really open wide, their hearts were open wide, maybe for the first time around race in America. It was common practice in the old version of this kind of uh, a social justice seminar to say, and thus, all white folks are racist. Now, that might be true. And that can be defined and understood. And ultimately, I hung in with that conversation and got, okay, they're not calling me a name. They're mean, meaning me to understand uh, how that leads to biases because of my blind spots that I was totally unaware of that amounts to my perpetuating a system and a government and a society that is completely unfair and inequitable to people of color. I understand that. But when you first hear that, it, it's it, it's kind of an angry expression, and it's not necessary in that moment. It, it's anti-connection in that moment. It's saying what you mean kind of mean. And um, I'm really glad that we have graduated out of feeling that that's a necessary practice in that moment. And instead, realizing folks are wide open and need to be connected with and nurtured in that moment and not kind of clubbed over the head with a word. Thank you. There is nothing more powerful than communication because we all have to do it and we're all doing it on some level all the time. When we are talking to ourselves or thinking, that's just another word for talking to ourselves, which means that we are doing what? Communicating with ourselves. When we are verbally speaking to other people, our body or when our body language is demonstrating communication, communication is so important because the world runs off communication. So when you power up your communication, you essentially power up your life. At the Soul Focus Group, we invite everybody that comes to really delve into powering up their communication, transforming the way they listen, transforming the way they speak, transforming the way they connect to people, because that is where our power is. Power up your communication, people. We all need it. You know, we're coming to the end of our session today. And one of the things I want to ask both of you, you know, in, in, the, in the spirit of what we've been talking about, both in social change work, Hollywood, social work, trauma, social work, uh, being a parent, being a, 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 a fellow traveler in this journey um, on this planet, um, what ought to be, in any realm in which we exist, what ought to be the mandate and the standard for us around creating like you talked earlier, Cindy, about the fact that folks enter into social work. Like my mother was a CPS social worker, taking away, you know, children in Camden, which is one of the roughest places in America. But at home, her child was being abused both by her partner and by her, you know. And so, you know, and everywhere we go, we ask some variation of that question, especially when we're working with folks in child welfare. You know, people aren't expected to have this understanding. People that get into social change work aren't expected to have this understanding. You know, so even Hank, as you were just talking about, there's no way, there was no way for us to not do this work from an angry, hurt, pained place. 
because 98 percent of us 95 to 98 percent of us had not addressed our internal pain so i want to ask you both to leave our listeners with in whatever realm you exist as a parent as a partner as a leader as a social change agent as an actor a social worker teacher whatever it is that you do what ought to be the standard and the mandate in your life around healing the wounded inner child i'll jump in this was touched on when Cindy said earlier, you know, it's not about not feeling your feelings or not reacting. You know, it's not about stuffing your feelings or straightening up and flying right or stiff up her lip or soldiering through or white knuckling. I had to really process my feelings around how I was approached on the street or what made me drink or what made me eat uh, to a toxic level or all the things my own part in, in in racism in this country, I think the answer is there has to be, and this is very personal, has to be personally, no one can do this for you. You can't join a group and do this or check a box and do this. You have to find a system, a, 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 a really, a practically, where you can feel your feelings, take a time out, everyone to call it, say, I'm not going to react to this right now. I'm not going to I'm not going to connect my mouth or my actions to when I'm feeling fight or flight, when I'm feeling afraid or angry, but I'm going to find a way to take a pause, work it through with someone, feel those feelings. And if need be, do a deep dive. What's that trigger? Why am I so reactive to this? What's upsetting me? You know, I realized, look, I don't want to get political. I'm not going to get political. But I'll just say generically that a lot of what tends to upset me in world events is sure the thing itself or the political leader on whatever side they're on or whatever it is. Yes, I, I get upset and justifiably about what is or isn't happening, but there's usually a big scoop of, and that's just what mom used to do. Mm -hmm. And that's how I really feel like dad treated me a lot. Um, and so the more we can uncover that personally, the, the more that that's not driving the boat. You know, when I'm upset politically or at a world level or a news current events level, I'm not also yelling at dad. I've kind of cleared out those pipes. So it's a place to process those feelings so I can craft a response and not fire off a reaction and look at my part. Sometimes my part's real. Sometimes I'm the problem. Sometimes what I'm bringing to the party is not good. You know, and I'm blaming how people are reacting to me, you know, or reacting to my reaction, you know, and I'm not factoring that in at all. Um, or I'm not, I'm so afraid to speak up for myself that I don't do it because that's what I learned in childhood. What's the point anyway? I speak the truth about what I'm seeing here. I always get told either don't be not don't be so sensitive, don't be silly, or you know, why can't you be more like your sister? Or, you know, you didn't have it so bad. I'll show you what bad like, I'll give you a reason to cry. You know, so if you don't haven't processed that and don't have some relationship to your own feelings that doesn't make you take those feelings and form a club out of them and use them on people or avoid it entirely or just stuff them down because it's too stressful, you're going to run into some horrible problems on a personal and societal level. Cindy? Yeah, so um, Hank, I want to second um, this concept of really identifying connecting to and you know acknowledging that feelings that you have feelings that you are a feeling person that even when you're numb there's a reason for that because one of the mandates that trauma 
like one of the mandates that trauma has for us is to be completely disconnected from our own experience, right? It requires us to be disconnected from the way that we feel, how our experiences have made us feel. It also requires us to, at, at, at times, um, you know, overreact to those feelings as well, but really it's about disconnect. And so I would say is like part of our mandate is acknowledging and noticing and observing when we are having responses that aren't working for us or aren't working for the people around us. And it doesn't, we don't necessarily have to be emotionally tied to that. It's just an observation. Like this isn't working for me. And then to trust our intuition that when it's not working for us, it really isn't working for us. Right. And to like, trust that, because again, like another piece of this is that we are expected to, to deny our own realities at the expense of other people, like for, for the profit of other people, I should say not at the expense of other people. And so we have to be able to acknowledge when it's not working, our intuition matters. And when we're feeling something, it's real and not something that's um, that's crafted or made up. And then the other piece of that, um, after we start to acknowledge that our, our feelings are real and that um, it's not working for us anymore, it's to have gentleness and grace with the way that we approach our own healing, but to do it wholeheartedly and do it in community, as you said, Hank, um, because this isn't our, none of our journey is meant to be done alone. You know, we weren't brought into this world to be isolated creatures. That is not what we are, you know, programmed evolutionarily to be. We survive together. Um, and so we have to heal together, but we are the, we are the, you know, the pilots of the plane. It's not anybody else's responsibility. And then finally, we have to also have patience and love and compassion for the people around us who are also on their own healing journey. Because oftentimes as we watch other people heal, there's a lot of judgment that we cast out. That's really just projective of our own experience of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so the more times we can sit together here in spaces like this and just honor each other's healing journey as imperfect as it is, as messy as it is, as painful as it is, then we, you know, we are healthier and better off in the long term and the long term. And I would also just say, um, you know, forgiveness of self is also, you know, a piece of that, um, that we, you know, we, we're doing the best we can each and every day. And as long as we can have a clear view of our own vision, or at least, you know, be, be crafting a vision, we should have forgiveness along our path as well. So that would be my, my mandate to all the social workers out there Thank and you. good therapy and good therapy, right? Dustin, good therapy. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. Thank you both so much. This has been a incredibly beautiful conversation, much needed conversation. I can't wait for us to get back together to continue this conversation, beginning to explore what does it mean for us to continuously uh, be on a journey of reparenting ourselves and beginning you know, action. You know, we've been talking about healing the whole time. Lean in deeper in terms of what it means to heal, uh, both in our personal lives as well as in our collective lives. So I want to say both. I love you both so much. And uh, for our listeners, uh, I know you got a lot of this conversation. Stay tuned for part two. Peace. Thanks. At the Soul Focus Group, we're probably one of the first organizations in the social justice movement to find ourselves moving away from fighting against racism to creating human solidarity. What we found is that we could fight 24 hours, 48 hours, or all our lives, and after fighting all this time, we have nothing to show for it. It's because we haven't created anything for ourselves. At the Soul Focus Group, we are one of the few organizations who have moved from fighting against racism to creating an alternative to racism. And we invite you to join us. 
Let's stop fighting and start creating the outcome we really want to experience. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed it um, as much as I did. Um, I just love this conversation. I love both parts of this conversation. I love the vulnerability and the depth that all three of them got to. Um, I know that you know, because you're here with us, you know that this is what Soul Focus Group is all about. Um, we're about healing. And in order for us to heal and get to a place of self-solidarity, we have to heal our inner child. In order for us to get to human solidarity, we have to do healing work on our inner child. All of us have hurt inner children, um, as was talked about. And again, I just want to thank Dustin uh, for how he led the conversation. I want to thank Cindy Carnegie and I want to thank Hank Azaria for how um, vulnerable they were, how honest they were, how knowledgeable they were. And uh, it was really incredible. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. I know you did. And look for um, more podcasts coming soon. Remember, this is part of our New Mind series. And know that we love you. We care about you. We want you to heal. We're all healing. All of us on our healing journey. I swear to you, all of us are. And we want you um, to be on that journey with us. And we want to help facilitate your healing journey. And we will ask of you, as we always do, that you stay well, you stay safe, and most of all, you stay soul-focused.